Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hello, guys. I'm Amber. So our reading from today is from Deuteronomy um, 5, 12 through 15. It says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Isaiah 55, 1-2 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the riches of fare. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 58. 8, 13-14. Alright, so I'm going to pray, if you guys don't mind. Father, thank you so much for this amazing day and this lovely weather that you've um, given us. Pray that you would touch Steve as he um, speaks your word, Lord, that you would guide him, that you would touch our hearts and that we would be blessed by you and that we would be encouraged and also challenged to um, to take uh, your Sabbath to heart and that we would be encouraged to take it seriously in a manner that we haven't before. Amen. Amen. Great. Nice to be with you all. Happy St. Patrick's to everyone. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing so well. And it's so good for us to be aware of these issues and be praying and supporting and allowing the Holy Spirit to provoke us to our role. So thank you to you and thank you to everyone who's led so far. The Sabbath, secret, the secret, I should say the secret to happiness. Um, This is part three in a four-part series where we're looking for answers to many of our modern problems by looking at an ancient Jewish practice, the Sabbath. Uh, If you haven't been with us, or even if you have, this is what we've looked at so far. Week one was the ruthless elimination of hurry. We've got to slow down to avoid the challenges of fatigue, exhaustion, and burnout. But we looked in week one, it's got to start in our heart. We've got to ruthlessly eliminate the hurry from our heart by knowing we're justified by faith in Christ. So that was the week one. Week two then, last week was the Sabbath is the antidote to anxiety. You see, anxiety causes so much mental and emotional tiredness. It's exhausting. So we've got to learn to surrender all our anxieties to Jesus, our rest giver, and find rest in him and his control of our lives. 
So that was week two. Today, week three, Sabbath, the secret of happiness. And again, we're going to see some of the challenges in our culture and how we must come to Jesus as the one we find the rest of satisfaction. So we're going to think about three things when it comes to Sabbath, the secret of happiness. We're going to think about the paradox of happiness. We're going to think about the breakthrough to happiness uh, and, and different routes our culture takes to get that breakthrough. And then Sabbath as a means to happiness, the actual uh, uh, practical outworking of it. So let's talk about the paradox of happiness. Now, in the Vaughan household, we typically do Friday film night as a family. And one of our favorite films, both for the story, the cast, and most importantly, the songs, which if I had more than 20 odd minutes, I would sing to you, so you're glad I don't, uh, is uh, The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman. It's the story of the poor and orphaned P.T. Barnum and his quest for fame and fortune. He's gonna make a perfect world and he's gonna make the greatest show on earth. And he almost does. He starts a circus with all the misfits of society and it's a big hit and he makes a name for himself and he makes himself loads and loads of cash and he puts his kids into ballet school and he tours the world. He proves all his critics wrong. You see, all his life he felt inadequate and that he could be more than what life had afforded him. And now, through his brilliance, ambition and tenacity, he has all he wanted, all of his dreams, have come true as he sang early on in the film, and yet it isn't enough. And so he gambles his circus, his wife and his daughters and all his money on the Swedish opera star, Jenny Lind. Like Barnum, though she's from a wealthy upper-class background where he wasn't, Lind has reached the top of her profession. She's the greatest opera singer in the world. And yet she sings a song that goes like this. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. You have these two brilliantly talented, wonderful, successful and fantastically rich people who've chased their dreams and achieved them. And yet it is never enough. That is the paradox of happiness. In different ways, their thirst for success, fame and riches had actually left them in a worse position than before they'd started to chase all their dreams because what they both ha don't have is meaningful relationships anymore. They've made the great mistake of sacrificing relationships on the altar of personal happiness. And P.T. Barnum's life falls apart and he ends up all alone and without friends or family drowning his sorrows in a local bar. But then in a sheer act of mercy, which he did not deserve, his friends from the circus turn up to bring him to his senses. And Barnum sings again. I drank champagne with kings and queens. The politicians praised my name. But those were someone else's dreams. The pitfalls of the man I became. For years and years I chased their cheers. Here's the line. The crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember who this is for. 
It's a brilliant story because it taps into something we all know that deep inside of us, we have this unquenchable thirst for happiness. And no matter how much we have, it never quite seems enough. That's the paradox of happiness. Wallace Stevens in his poem, Sunday Morning, puts it like this, but in contentment, I still feel the need for an imperishable bliss. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, even as I taste a moment of contentment, I taste how fleeting it is, and it will soon be wrenched from my grasp. This is what the famous Old Testament sage was grappling with in the book of Ecclesiastes. The ancient Hebrew word is hevel, the ephemeral, like a wisp, a, a whisper, a bubble. It's gone before you can grab it. The, ephem the ephemeral nature of all satisfaction makes us long for something we cannot keep. And so we keep searching in vain. It's a chasing after the wind, if you know that story. One theologian put it like this, in the torment of the insufficient of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world, there is no finished symphony. No finished symphony. Thomas Aquinas was once asked, what would satisfy our desire? What would it take to really satisfy us? He paused and said, everything. The evidence seems to say that the cavern in our soul is infinitely deep. There is no finished symphony. Our desire is finite, yet there is nothing to fully meet that desire. As John Mark Comer in his book puts it in the language of maths, infinite desire minus finite soul equals restlessness. We're restless because there's no finished symphony in this world, nothing that will fully satisfy our desires. It's never enough. And by the way, the best marketeers and the best advertisers in the world know this paradox and they tempt you with it. And they say, if you just buy this, or if you just go to this place, or if you just have this experience, or if you just get this job, or if you just get this home, or if you just have this relationship, or if you just have this family, and so on and so forth, and they tap in to our inner quest that we cannot seem to find, and it only keeps us thirsty. And so to use the analogy from last week, and the restlessness analogy, we end up on a hedonistic treadmill. And you keep running faster. And even if you put the treadmill on a higher on a higher gauge, as you know, with the treadmill, you don't change direction. You don't change where you are. You just have to run faster until you get exhausted and have to give up. That was P.T. Barnum's story. But I think it's all our stories, isn't it? Isn't it? I know it's partly my story. To some degree, we all feel the paradox of happiness. And it leaves us very tired, restless. How do we get off the treadmill? How do we find that satisfaction? I want to propose the Sabbath. But first, I want to look at seven different routes our culture takes to try and handle this paradox without God. The seven breakthroughs to happiness that I think fail. And these will depend on your stage of life and your personality. These come from Tim Keller in his book on making sense of God. He says the first one is uh, naivety, particularly if you're young and you just assume you need more time to find the happiness you long for. You just assume it's time. 
and you assume it eventually come and you're just young and naive. Then it's resentful. You start to blame all the obstacles that are stopping you being happy and you become the victim and you blame other people and the social structures and everything else. From there or instead of there, you become driven. Like P.T. Barnum, you just think, no, 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 I've just got to work harder, more relationships, more experiences, more achievement, more success. And I just assume if I keep going, there's no obstacle that's going to get in my way, is what you say. And you become incredibly driven. What despair. From blaming circumstances to blaming others, you start to blame yourself. You're the reason you can't find happiness. And so you start to hate yourself. All of those tactics four out of the seven assume happiness is out there to be achieved and these are some of the ways you deal with that on the flip side some people go no no no, there is no such thing as happiness true happiness it's not available so we take other routes the first one interestingly is altruism those who in the first part of their life got rich use the second part of their life to help others uh, that seems like a better path and of course it is in many ways but ultimately it's just the self-serving as one's benevolence is simply a way to find fulfillment. Supposed generosity is really about building yourself up and it's often revealed in its ugly nature when our altruistic efforts are met with disdain and contempt and not respect and gratitude by those we give them to and so we despise them and we realize it wasn't about them, it was about us. If it's not altruism, it might just be cynicism. You stop chasing rainbows and you lower your expectations of life. The problem is you become very patronizing to anyone with a dream while you yourself stagnate. And to give up altogether on the quest for happiness, it's very dehumanizing. Now, the Eastern traditions and the Greek Stoics had another one. They said detachment was the only way to solve the paradox of happiness. Just don't ever give your heart to anything. The problem is everyone knows you cannot nor you should not detach yourself from relationships of love and say they do not matter. Relationships matter and it only hardens your heart to fully detach from them. So can you see naivety, resentfulness, anxiety, drivenness, self-hating and despair? Because you think it, happiness is out there and I can't get it. Or condescending, cynical and detached, dehumanizing because you've given up altogether. Is there a better way to solve the paradox and breakthrough? Yes. We turn our desires to the one who can satisfy them. And that was one of the main purposes of the Sabbath, to remind and encourage and lead our hearts to the one that can and does satisfy partially in this life and one day in the life to come. The Sabbath was a holy day, a day for delight, because it was a day when our desires and our hearts focus on God and how satisfaction was found in him. The Sabbath was a day for getting off the hedonistic treadmill and to gaze upon the one for whom this is all for and to whom we are running. You see, when Israel was given the Ten Commandments, which what, that we just read out the, 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 the fourth, we remember how the fourth commandment fits into all the other ones. So, for example, the first commandment says this, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. How did Jesus summarize the commandments? Do you remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All. You see that phrase? All of the law and the prophets hang 
on these two commandments. In other words, we can only obey the fourth commandment about the Sabbath when we have first obeyed the first commandment to love God first. When, when we look only to God to truly satisfy us, when we love him above all else, when we love the giver above the gifts, we can start to obey the Sabbath. So here is the rub of the issue, and it comes from St. Augustine. Who, who wrote the first autobiography in world history, his confessions. He grapples with the paradox of happiness famously in his confessions, like the man of Ecclesiastes did. And Augustine concludes that the issue is not that we love the wrong things, but we love things in the wrong order. It's not that we love the wrong things, it's we love things in the wrong order. The solution is not to love the things of this life less, but to love God more. The problem is not that we love our job or our children too much, but we love them too little and we love God too little in relationship to them. God is the only one we cannot lose. God is the only one we know will ultimately satisfy us. So don't give your heart fully and finally to anything but him. And that, by the way, is why the Bible in, in the Bible, God is constantly telling us to praise him, not for his sake, but for our sake. Because if you worship anything but God, it'll crush your heart. So Augustine, writing around the fifth century, St. Patrick's Day this week, wasn't it? He's, he's writing just before St. Patrick. And it's one of the most famous lines that's come down to us from 1500 years ago. And Augustine says this, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. The solution is not to love the things of this life less, but to love God more. That is why the first commandment says, that is what the first commandment says. That is what Jesus knew. That is what Augustine understood. That is the breakthrough to happiness. Because when we love God first, our love for other people and other things is purified. And therefore we can actually enjoy them fully without needing from them something they cannot give us, that only God can give us, true and lasting happiness and satisfaction. But when we go to him for those things, true and lasting happiness and satisfaction, we can enjoy his gifts much more appropriately without feeling they're growing from our grasp. And we don't resent them and we don't put too much weight on them and we don't end up feeling restless. So Tim Keller in his chapter on satisfaction in the book, Making Sense of God, says this. Here then is the message. Don't love anything less. Instead, learn to love God more. You will love other things with more satisfaction. You won't overprotect them. You won't overexpect things from them. You won't be constantly furious with them for not being what you'd hoped. Don't stifle passionate love for anything. Rather, redirect your greatest love towards God by loving him with your whole heart and loving him for himself, not just for what he can give you. Then and only then does contentment start to come. So what do we read in the book of Isaiah chapter 55? Come, all who are thirsty, like P.T. Barnum. 
Come to the waters, you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread? Why your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. God is giving us an invitation to a feast, not the feast provided by this world that will always leave you hungry, but a feast that he will provide. And the feast is free. It comes by grace and not works. So we come without money and yet we can somehow buy and eat. God is urging us, stop spending your money on things that don't satisfy. Stop spending your energy in an endless and exhausting pursuit of happiness that never comes. Stop listening to the world's narrative about how happiness comes. Stop listening to the marketeers and the advertisers who are making enormous amounts of money from your discontent. And start listening to God and eat what is good and delight in the richest of fair. There is delight, enjoyment, happiness, satisfaction in the meal and the drink that God provides. And remember from Genesis chapter two, week week one of our series, when God rested, he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because his work was finished and his work was good. So he rested because he was satisfied. And God says, hey, I've worked again to prepare a feast and to prepare meat and wine that you can enjoy and you can delight in how did god prepare that feast years later jesus god's son the bread of life who satisfied would be broken into pieces so we could eat and jesus wasn't just bread do you remember he was the living water who could quench our thirst but do you remember what he cries out on the cross I thirst, John 19, the living water ran dry so you and I could be quenched. Jesus on the cross experienced a cosmic meaninglessness, a cosmic unhappiness, that chasing, that cavern in our soul. He experienced it eternally in that moment. So we can drink and be satisfied. God would pay for our constant chasing. So by grace, we could eat and drink for free. And as God did this, it would be his way, not just of meeting the law's demand on our behalf, but winning our hearts. He would not just forgive us, but he would satisfy us. We'd start to delight in him as we saw his great love for us in his son. And so did you notice the word that comes up again? It's here in Isaiah 55, and then it's here in Isaiah 58, when Isaiah is speaking about all the injustices and evil that the people of God are, 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 you know, are, are not responding to, like what Sarah was helping us think to, how do we respond? And he says, you've got to act justly, you've got to love mercy, you've got to conduct your business fairly, you've got to look after the poor and the needy, and use the Sabbath to think about these things too, instead of just scheming for money. And what does he say then? He says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find what? What will you find, friends? Your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob, for the mouth 
of the Lord has spoken. What does it say about the Sabbath? It's God's holy day. It's, we're to call it a delight and we're to honour God with it. As God says, if we treat this as holy and honourable and a day to delight in, we will find joy in God and we will experience what P.T. Barnum wanted to experience. We will ride in triumph on the heights. We will feast. But in God, the things of this world that never satisfy, we come to enjoy him and gaze upon him. So let me finish briefly with some practices then. The Sabbath is a means to gain this happiness. First of all, make the Sabbath day, whatever day you choose, a day to look forward to. Again, this comes back to some, one of my main points of the whole series. The Sabbath isn't just a day off where we crash. It can have aspects of that, of course, but it's a day of rest, which is much more about satisfaction and to be made holy. And therefore, it needs planning, planning around worship and play, food and friends, time alone and time with others, time inside and time outside, time in the city and time in the country. However you plan it, make it a day to look forward to because you're going to delight in it and in the gifts of God and in the giver, God himself. Dan Allender in his book on the Sabbath put it like this. The Sabbath is, a, is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experiencing God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It is the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. Sabbath is a holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk and watch creation in its fullness few people are willing to enter the sabbath sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime let alone a week now let's not worry about whether it has to be a saturday or a sunday i don't think it does because i think jesus is our sabbath but the practice of a weekly day of rest that was grounded in creation reiterated in the story of Israel's redemption. We should heed the wisdom of the weekly nature of it as far as we are able with our work and make it a day to look forward to. And a key ingredient is worship, personal and corporate, to say to God in our hearts that we can sing, I don't love the things of this world any less. I just love you more. Our hearts are restless, Augustine said until they rest in him. Secondly, a practice. See, guerrilla war see the Sabbath as guerrilla warfare. You're thinking, come on now, Steve, what, what are you talking about? Let me explain. Remember in the context of the rescue out of slavery of Egypt, the Sabbath to Israel was this resistance to being pulled back into Egypt and back into the mindset and the work without rest of Egypt of slavery, and they were to live an alternative life. And so when you plan and enjoy a day of rest and delight in God, remember you're practicing guerrilla warfare against sin, the world and the devil who are trying to force you back under a slave master and your old self. Resist the forces at work that are trying to dictate the narrative you should believe about happiness. The social media scroll that makes you jealous, the newsreel where you get anxious. God and his word and his story about the world dictates our values. Call out the lies of the marketeers who are trying to monetize your restlessness and declare yourself free in Christ. 
if you want to break free from the oppressive yoke of an Egyptian taskmaster and its restless, relentless lust for more, just take a day each week to come out of the system. Don't buy, don't sell, don't shop, don't surf the web, don't read a magazine, don't be on your phone. Of course, I'm not saying you don't, you get the point. That's not get legalistic. But drink deeply from the well of ordinary life, a meal with friends, time with the family, a walk in the forest, afternoon tea, if you're English. <laughs> Slow down, enjoy life, enjoy God, and practice guerrilla warfare and everything that's trying to pull you back in to the work without rest. This is a holy day. This isn't about legalism. Set a day aside for delight. And my final encouragement to you is use the Sabbath to remember the end of the story. The Sabbath is one day a week when we remember that in this world, there is no finished symphony and that's okay. Because on the Sabbath, we also remember one day the symphony will finish and it will be spectacular. Jesus will return. He will take us home. He will ravish our hearts beyond anything we could ever dream. The most exhilarating scenery, the most loving of marriages, the most pleasurable of sex, the most profound friendship, the most satisfying joy and the most wonderful experiences of this earth will be but a drop in the ocean of the delight we will experience when Jesus comes to take us home and we fully and finally rest in his arms. As Isaiah says, then we will delight, we will find joy in the Lord and rise on the tri in triumph on the heights of the land and we will feast on the inheritance of our forefathers. This world is not our final abode or resting place. No one put it better than C.S. Lewis when he said this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hungry, hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. On the Sabbath, we remember that other world. We long for it with great joy. The symphony will one day be finished and we can rest. Let me pray. Lord, you've put in us this deep hunger for happiness, this deep hunger for joy and satisfaction. And Lord, the last thing you want us to do is to quell that and quench it and stifle it and, and say that doesn't matter. Lord, you're saying, no, it really matters, but we're to find and redirect all our desires and our joy and our hope for satisfaction not in the things of this world but in you our giver of all good gifts our lover our king our savior our friend our spouse lord it's in you forgive us again lord for when and how we chase after happiness and we go after all the wrong things instead of you and teach us lord this deep lesson 
of Sabbath, that we can rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Help us to put that into practice that are through the gospel every day, reminding ourselves that there's fake news all around us. There's marketeers trying to tell us that this is the way to happiness, and Lord, it's not. And on the Sabbath, we say, no, it's you. You are the apple of our eye. You're the joy giver. You're the one that fully and finally satisfies. And one day, Lord, you're going to come and take us home. And for every moment of sadness and for every unfulfilled desire in this life, you, Lord, are going to make it up to us in tenfold. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life broken for us that we might eat and be satisfied. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the, the, the spring of living water that ran dry so we could be quenched. And once again, we sing now as your people, declaring and turning our hearts to you to say you are the great joy giver. And we put all our hope for happiness, ultimate, final happiness in you. In your name we pray. Amen.